This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 21, Power and Archaeology, Michael Foucault. Okay, today we're going to talk about Foucault, um, who is perhaps only slightly less dark than Girard, and, but the, the tone is less dark. Um, some of the content is, is equally creepy, but the tone is somewhat less dark. Um, and at this point in the course, I'm really trying to kind of take you through now this transition from modernity to postmodernity that we're finally making. You know, so modernity was all about trying to replace God. First, we move God to the side, um, and then we kill God off, and then you've got this big space to fill. You know, God had fulfilled all of these simultaneous epistemological, ontological, ethical functions. And so all of modern thought is in some way an attempt to replace God. You know, and the three big ways that that's attempted to be done is with the human subject, with history, with a capital H, which moving through time. And then the last one, the last of the three I'm giving you is with structure. Structure that holds things together. Um, so structuralism gave us the vulnerability that meaning was not intrinsic, but rather relational and thereby contingent and only existed in the context of a given structure. Meaning was dependent upon a given structure, not absolute. Um, the subject was no longer the source of meaning. Movement through time no longer produced meaning. Um, reality was also not something kind of out there fixed, but was created within the framework of a structure. Language was not just something reflecting reality, but in some way producing reality. And you see here echoes of the avant-garde. The avant-garde has a kind of different tone to it, a different aesthetic, but taking off from that same structuralist insight that the signifier and the signified could be decoupled, could be disarticulated from each other. Um, the idea that language wasn't just reflecting meaning, but rather more profoundly was producing meaning, that signifiers were signifying by their difference with other signifiers within the context of a given structure, gave some critics the idea that really, this is just another version of philosophical idealism. This is just another version of the fact that there is no such thing as a ding an sich, as a world unto itself, as reality unto itself, but things are produced by consciousness. The world is constituted by human consciousness, except now it's kind of constituted, constituted by language and constituted by structure. But so we're back to this idea in the old realism idealist argument about does the world exist or is it just a projection of my consciousness? The old problem of the bridge, if you don't have a bridge, how do you know that the world really exists? Um, and now we're gonna look at it in a slightly different key and we're gonna say is there substance to the world or is it only form? Because structuralism is all about form, it's all about difference, it's all about comfort, uh, contrast. Is there a reference behind the text? Is there something anterior? Is there something, is, is there an anterior reality? 
you know, so again, think, you can think about this on an analogy as the, you know, Kant and Husserl struggling with this idea of, you know, is there a Ding an sich? Is there a thing in itself, you know, beyond the reach of our consciousness? And Kant brokers that compromise by saying, yes, I believe there is a world unto itself, being in and of itself, but we don't have access to it. Um, and then Husserl can't stand that kind of fatalism, and he wants access. He wants a bridge. Um, okay. And that question of, is there anything outside of human consciousness that is real and solid, comes back to that problem of groundlessness, the fear of alienation. Is there anything stable we can hold on to? You know, is a structure stable enough for us to hold on to it? Now, Girard is a realist in this debate. He says that, yes, texts do not just create meaning, do not just produce meaning, they disclose meaning. Texts reveal meaning. Signs create culture, but they also reveal things that predate or are anterior to that culture. There's a reference outside the text. Misreveal misreve the truths of persecutions. They don't only exist at their own level, myths are part of culture, but they re reveal the truths of real persecutions if we can read them critically. The victim is not only a discursive construct for Girard. There's always a real victim. The crisis is real, the violence is real, the victim is a real victim. He is chosen not for crimes he has committed, but for certain signs he bears. And Girard has a whole long analysis in the scapegoat about what might make certain groups or certain people vulnerable to being targeted as scapegoats. And remember, where he comes out still very decisively as, as a modernist, as opposed to a postmodernist, is that he insists that truth is possible, there is access to truth, there is a truth reference, a reality reference, and that lies with the victim. You can get to truth by identification with the victim. And for Girard, truth is revealed at the moment when the victim is, is identified as a victim. Um, so now I'm going to move you into this postmodern space where it's no longer going to be so certain that there is such a thing as truth or there is such a thing as a truth that will hold itself stable. Um, so we're going to now go through, we're gonna, I'm gonna kind of take you into postmodernism gradually through Foucault and Derrida, through these critiques of structuralism. And structuralism you can see as the last major attempt to replace God. You know, the last big school of thought that tries to replace God. And now, when we go to postmodernism, it's the moment when we give up on replacing God. And we're going to move increasingly to a crisis of stable meaning, a crisis of truth, a crisis of a stable subjectivity. Postmodernity is often defined by a kind of fervent anti-Hegelianism. Everybody is going to be trying to escape from Hegel. This idea that there is no whole. You know, Hegel says the true is the whole. There is no whole. There's no order, there's no stable meaning, there's no stable subject, there's no stable direction, 
There's no totality. None of it. There's none of it. So postmodernity is destabilization. It's the questioning and taking apart of everything. It's a kind of embracing of the impossibility of grasping meaning. It's a rejection of both a solid subjectivity and a solid teleology, and ultimately a solid structure as well. Um, as a footnote, I would say that Freud's idea of the unconscious remains. Once the idea of the unconscious is out there in the world with Freud, it's always with us. There's a kind of acceptance that certain things are always going to be going on in the unconscious, that it's real, for better or for worse. Um, and Foucault, in many ways, is going to start out his work as a rebellion against the phenomenological existentialist tradition with a critique of the modern notion of the sovereignty of the subject. The idea that in modern thought you can doubt everything except the existence of the I. Going back to Descartes. Remember, Descartes performs this radical experiment that you accept that you, you accept absolutely nothing, you radically doubt everything, you accept nothing but what you haven't proven to yourself, and then is there anything you can be certain of with which you can begin? And for Descartes, that only thing that you can be certain of with which you can begin is the I, is the cogito, is the thinking I. I think, therefore I am. The cogito, the I think, is your only stable grounding point. You know, and so this tradition in modern thought that everything else can be doubted, the whole existence of the world, but there's an I. Now, whether you define the I as the Cartesian cogito or Husserl's transcendental ego, you know, or you know, Heidegger's Dasein, or Sartre's idea of this of radical freedom, there's still an I. And Foucault's gonna come out in rebellion against the notion of this sovereignty of the I. That, um, and I'll, I'll read you a passage from his Archaeology of Knowledge. And he's saying, in various forms, this modern notion of the sovereignty of the I has played a constant role, you know, to preserve against all decenterings the sovereignty of the subject and the twin figures of anthropology and humanism. Against the decentering operated by Marx, by the historical analysis of the relations of production, economic determinations, and the class struggle, it gave place towards the end of the 19th century for a search to the search for total history in which all the differences of a society might be reduced to a single form, to the organization of a worldview, to the establishment of a system of values, to a coherent type of civilization. To the decentering operated by the Nietzschean genealogy, it opposed the search for an original foundation that would make rationality, reason, the telos of mankind, and link the whole history of thought to the preservation of this rationality, to the maintenance of this teleology, and to the ever necessary return to this foundation. So Foucault's gonna reject this foundation. He's gonna reject the foundation of the subject. Um, and you'll see as we move on, he's gonna occupy kind of liminal position here between structuralism and a more radical form of post-structuralism that Derrida will embrace. What you're going to have with Foucault is that agency is now going to be relocated largely in language. 
So it's no longer going to be the momentum of history or the sovereignty of the self, but it's going to be relocated in language itself, in discourse. Discourse is going to become a key word. Um, and when, when I was in graduate school in the 1990s, you know, th this was extremely fashionable, Foucault and Derrida and all of the postmodernist theory. And there were certain words like discourse, problematic, deconstruct, that the anti-postmodernist in the history department at Stanford, who were so irritated by the fact that they came out of the rest of our mouths like every other word, decided that we should all be charged a dollar for every time we needed to use the word discourse problematic or deconstruct. And the idea was you could use it. If you really couldn't express yourself in another way, if you needed to use the word discourse, you could use the word discourse, but then you had to pay a dollar to this collective department fund, and then we went to this bar called The Nut House every Thursday night where they had infinite amounts of free peanuts and shells, and you threw the shells on the floor, and like the motif was a floor of peanut shells. <laughs> That's a little side note, discourse. <laughs> discourse was a very fetishized word. <laughs> when I was in graduate school, there were no more realities. There were no more real human beings. There was just discourse. Agency was relocated in discourse. Okay, so the system of signs itself becomes the new ersat subject as both the subject and the object are, are bracketed. And see, if you forget the word discourse, just remember that the floor filled with the peanut shells, and then that might remember, remind you of discourse. Okay. Um, Foucault is an interesting figure because he's both an, you know, an object of intellectual history. You know, we study him as a part of intellectual history, but he also offers us a methodology for the writing of intellectual history. So if you've come across historical literature on Foucault or dealing with Foucault, that will be broadly construed of two, as two types. There's literature studying Foucault himself and his philosophy, and then there are histories using his methodology in order to write history. And I think I've, I've given you one of the, the most important and kind of classic examples of that, which was from Steve Kotkin's book um, on Magnetogorsk, um, The Magnetic Mountain, which he dedicated to Foucault. He was one of Foucault's last students in the early 1980s at, at Berkeley. Um, and then you see there, that's not a book about Foucault, that's a book using Foucault um, to write about Stalinism. So I want you to kind of keep both those things in mind because you'll see him, he's very productive as offering historians a methodology for, for the writing of intellectual history. Okay, so who was he? Um, he was born 1926. So he's exactly the generation of the young Stalinist who become the revisionist Marxist. He's exactly the same generation as Lesha Kowalkowski and Karol Kosik and Milan Kundera. Um, when my, my professor in graduate school, Paul Robinson, who is a wonderful historian of intellectual history and, and a Freudian, um, who loved to go into lots of detailed biographical backgrounds, um, and he would describe Foucault as leading a distinctively and dangerously homosexual life. Um, and I bring this up because there's, he dies of AIDS in 1984. And it's a moment almost before AIDS is really on the horizon 
of the mass public, but is still creeping up as a kind of new pandemic. So there's, there's a darkness about, it's not just that this was a time, you know, when there was a lot more uptightness, let's say, or a lot more persecution than there is today, and there's still persecution of LGBT community. But it's also a time when AIDS was coming on the scene, but barely understood by people outside the medical community, and it was associated with this kind of taboo sexuality, but it was also coming out of the closet to kill people. So there was a very particular kind of ominous darkness about it. It wasn't just a kind of you know, puritanical issue about sex. It was also the sense that this could kill you, and it was killing people, and people weren't ready to talk about it, and nobody knew exactly what was going on. You know, so the fact that, I mean, he dies of AIDS in 84, it's very early. Um, and it's a time when it wasn't yet talked about by a lot of people. And then it was doubly taboo because it was scary, it was associated with sex, and it was associated in particular with gay sex and among men. Um, and so that, that, that's a context for a lot of the writing he's going to do about discourse, about repression, about sexuality, about confinement. Um, I mean, it was a time when sex was literally a potential death sentence, you know, in a way that mercifully, I think for your generation, it's not like, I mean, now there are drugs and things. Now, now if you get HIV, you don't die right away. But it, it had this death sentence feeling. If you can think yourself back to like the very beginning of COVID, when everybody was like just in a panic six feet away in a lockdown, feeling like this thing was about to come that was there was going to be a wave of death. It was much more like that. Um, not that I want to scare you. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you all missed that time. <laughs> it was very scary. But that's, that, that's a context. Um, his openness about sexuality in this context was very important for the whole field of gender and sexuality. So not just the methodology and the theory of power, which I'm going to get to in a few minutes, but also his own openness about his own life was very important at the time, especially in the context of this pandemic. And he, you know, he, he tragically dies of it very early in 1984, so he's 58. Um, he's a wonderful writer. His ideas are formed in dialogue with those of many other thinkers we've read. You'll see Marx, Nietzsche, Heidegger, Sartre, Levi-Strauss. You'll see all those usual suspects. Um, at one point, he says about Heidegger that his entire philosophical development was determined by his reading of Heidegger. Um, I had a brilliant uh, graduate student who finished a few years ago who wrote a dissertation about Foucault's reading of Nietzsche and Heidegger and makes a very strong argument that actually his reading of Nietzsche was more crucial than the reading of Heidegger, although there was some of that Nietzsche coming through Heidegger's reading of Nietzsche. Um, in any case, both Heidegger and Nietzsche are playing very cruel crucial roles here. Um, he comes on to the French scene kind of after Sartre and then after Lévi-Strauss. It's a kind of next wave. And he looks at Sartre and the existentialist and says, you know, Sartre was a man of the 19th century trying to think the 20th. Um, so he's at this intersection now that I'm going to try to talk you through between structuralism and post-structuralism. 
So he's taking the premise from structuralism that meaning is relational. Um, and I'll, I'll read you another, another quote from Archaeology of Knowledge. Every statement is specified, he says. There is no statement in general, no free, neutral, independent statement. A statement always belongs to a series or a whole. A statement always plays a role among other statements, deriving support from them and distinguishing itself from them. It is always part of a network of statements. So that the statement, so imagine now we're going to go from analogy to language to discourse. Um, just a kind of half step. And you say something and it signifies because of the web of relations with other statements. Um, and the meaning, what a given statement signifies is dependent on this web of relations, is dependent on the structure. So this is the structuralist premise now kind of nudged up from language to discourse which is how we talk about things, a slightly more pregnant version of language, let's call it. Um, but, and here's where we make a post-structuralist term, but the structure is never closed. Um, the frontiers of a book are never clear cut. The network of references is never really closed. Life goes on, so to speak. You can't really close the structure. Um, in 1966, he published a book called The Order of Things, which was an archaeology of the human sciences. And I'll get back to this idea of archaeology, which is inspired by Nietzsche in a few minutes, which he's kind of looking at the way in which the construction of what these different human sciences mean changed over time. Um, that came out when he was 40 in 1966 and was kind of an overnight sensation. It sold 20,000 copies in four months after it appeared, which for you know, a work of philosophy slash intellectual history that's not so easy to read is <laughs> really a lot of copies. Um, and he becomes an overnight celebrity, um, as does this archaeological method, which is one of the things that will stay with history in general and intellectual history in particular, and I'll get back to that in a few minutes. And in the order of things, he sets out his approach. He spends a lot of time talking about his approach, and this is a quotation from the order of things. He says, if there is one approach that I do reject, it is that which one might call, broadly speaking, the phenomenological approach, which gives absolute priority to the observing subject which attributes a constituent role to an act, which places its own point of view at the origin of all historicity, which in short leads to a transcendental consciousness. Um, it seems to me that the historical analysis of scientific discourse should in the last resort be subject not to a theory of the knowing subject, but rather to a theory of discursive practice. So he's rejecting this idea of a transcendental consciousness. And remember, transcendental, you know, in the way in which it comes to us from Kant and Husserl is possessing the conditions of possibility for transcendence, to move from inner to outer, you know, to go from the subject to the object to the world. The transcendental consciousness, that which can cross over and reach the world. And Foucault's going to reject that idea. 
and say instead of looking for meaning coming out of that transcendental consciousness, we're now going to look for meaning somewhere else. We're going to look at discursive practice. Um, he's going to go on to write these histories. Um, he's in some ways emphatically a particularist who really believes that the only legitimate knowledge is historical knowledge. And he thought of himself not only as a philosopher, but as a historian of ideas and a historian of institutions. And in particular, a historian of the discourses and practices of those institutions. Um, his own histories, and I'm going to take you through the three major, he, he first does this kind of history of, of the human sciences, and then he's going to do a history of the insane asylum, and then prison, and then sexuality. Um, so the motif, all of these are in some way, especially the, the insane asylum, the prison, and sexuality, they are all kind of variations on a theme. And that theme is that these intellectual and institutional transformations of modernity are not what they seem to be. In general, they're darker than what they seem to be. Now here you see a parallel with Girard. Everything is darker than what you think. And probably you already think things are pretty dark. My, my daughter recently said to me, she said, I may have told you this already, she's 11. She said, you know, mommy, remember when Uncle Dan told me that even though God wasn't real, I could definitely complain to him? I said, yes, of course. She said, wouldn't this be a good time to complain to him? <laughs> like, yes, the world is unfortunately very dark. Um, what you get from reading Foucault is that it's still darker than it looks because there are things hidden. And here you get the parallels to Girard. So Madness and Civilization, which is his history of the emergence of the insane asylum in 18th century France. And he's really preoccupied with this period between enlightenment and, and the 20th century. And he looks at these buildings that had previously housed lepers, housed people with infectious diseases, um, and then became places to, to house the mentally ill. Um, and the, he critiques the traditional narrative of the development of the insane asylum, which had up till then be seen as a it had been seen as a progressive achievement. The idea that you look at the mentally ill as patients as opposed to as criminals. And he says this is really not about you know, being more humane, this is really about control. You know, that the asylum is essential a means, of a means of controlling the mad, the insane, and he calls the creation of the mental hospital, the insane asylum, he names it the great internment, it's the great confinement. He also makes an argument, which is a very structuralist argument, that this definition of madness, this definition of insanity, which facilitated the creation of the asylum, of the mental hospital, was in fact the prerequisite for the development of enlightenment ideal of reason. That in order for there to be such a thing as reason, there has to be such a thing as unreason. Here you get the structuralist binaries coming back. The asylum was the dark side of the enlightenment. You know, enlightenment reason was made possible only by this, this development of a concept of madness. 
Um, you also see parallels here to Simone de Beauvoir's work, to the idea that we only have definition through another. We only ha get to self-definition through another. And then the structuralist premise that meaning is all about difference, and it tends to be binary in classical structuralism. Uh, and so reason depended on madness. The idea of reason depended on the idea of madness. Um, there's a wonderful book by um, the historian Larry Wolf, who's a historian of Eastern Europe, um, called Inventing Eastern Europe, that also looks at this Enlightenment period. And he said Eastern Europe was invented, you know, create, was created during the Enlightenment as a contrast to the Western half of Europe that it was only through this kind of orientalist contrast that you, can, that you can create meaning. It always has to be, there has to be some kind of binary coming together. Okay. The next one follows in a very analogous way, that's discipline and punish, and that looks at the creation of the prison as an institution in the late 18th and early 19th century, and which had been a story that was previously presented as a much more rational and humane form of punishment than the previous regime of torture. The idea that prisons therefore allowed you to avoid torture as primary punishment, to protect the public, and to foster rehabilitation. And Foucault is going to argue that the real function of prison, again, is isolation and surveillance. You know, and he's going to connect prisons with insane asylums, with schools, with hospitals, with factories, as institutions of control and surveillance. He's very interested in the rise of the modern surveillance institution. And he draws on a concept that was um, created by Jeremy Bentham around 1791 called the panopticon. Panopticon is another word that really comes from Jeremy Bentham, but it's now associated most with Foucault. And panopticon just means all seeing. Um, you can look up pictures of it on the internet as it was originally sketched. And it's a kind of radial, like circularly designed booth in such a way that functioned as a round the clock surveillance booth for prisoners. And its design ensured that no prisoner could know or see when the guard in the booth was looking at him. So you always had to think you might be being surveilled, but you might not. You know, and that uncertainty was part of the control. And he's very interested in that. The idea that this privileged central location of the guard created a situation where the prisoner could never know whether or not he was being watched. And this mental uncertainty was an instrument of discipline. Okay. Um, the third one in this series, The History of Sexuality, um, also looks at, is looking at this change over time. Um, the motif is slightly different in that it's looking at discourse, the history of discourse, and I'll get back to that in a few minutes, about sexuality. And it is essentially a kind of critique of the so-called repressive hypothesis that you see with Herbert Marcuse, for instance. The traditional view that there is this Victorian prudishness that dominated under bourgeois capitalism and made everybody very repressed about sexuality and afraid to talk about it. Um, and here Foucault says that what he's interested in the book 
is to define the regime of power, knowledge, pleasure that sustains the discourse on human sexuality in our part of the world. To account for the fact that it is spoken about, to discover who does the speaking, the positions and viewpoints from which they speak, the institutions which prompt people to speak about it and which store and distribute the things that are said. What is at issue briefly, he writes, is the overall discursive fact, the way in which sex is put into discourse. And he calls the theory of repression a myth, and he says, I don't want to ask why are we so repressed, but why do we keep talking about the fact that we're repressed? By what spiral did we come to affirm that sex is negated? What led us to keep obsessively talking about the fact that we're repressed, which is in fact a way of continuing to talk about sex? Um, he said that actually, far from being silenced in the 18th and 19th centuries, he said sexuality underwent a discursive explosion. It became a subject of excessive scrutiny, so you're getting back to scrutiny, surveillance, control, um, and ultimately scientific explanation. Um, this, this putting into discourse of sex, he writes, far from undergoing a process of restriction, on the contrary, has been subjected to a mechanism of increasing incitement. These techniques of power exercised over sex have not obeyed a principle of rigorous selection, but one of dissemination and implantation of polymorphous sexualities. So in fact, there's been incitement to talk about sex, and this has enabled then sex to be made subject to intense, very interested observation and surveillance. Sex gets scrutinized, it gets categorized, it gets medicalized. Homosexuality had previously been, he says, more a kind of temporary aberration, you know, or an act or an activity or an instance. Now it was going to become a category, a type, um, a singular nature. You know, the homosexual was now a species, he writes. Um, he talks about how in Catholic confessions, the, the moment of transgression shifted from the act itself to the stirrings of desire. That the discourse kept shifting things to a way that they could be categorized more robustly and surveilled in a more invasive way. Um, what is peculiar to modern societies, he says, is not in fact that they confined sex to a shadow existence, but that they dedicated themselves to speaking about it ad infinitum while exploiting it as the secret. Modern society, he says, is perverse, not in spite of its puritanism or as if from a backlash provoked by its hypocrisy, it is, he writes, in actual fact and directly perverse this kind of generation of discourse with, in some sense, the object and the desire to then categorize and control it. Um, he's looking at sexuality here, he says, not as a stubborn drive in Foucault's sense, not as eros, not as libido, but as an especially dense transfer point for relations of power. And I'll get back to that in a couple minutes, this relationship between sexuality and power. You know, and that's going to be a huge shift in the field. That's going to be a kind of revelation in how historians of sexuality think about things. Um, but let, let me first, before I get to power, just say a little bit about, um, so you can see here that he falls into a conversation started by Adorno and Horkheimer about the real legacy of enlightenment. 
Can you draw a line between enlightenment and totalitarianism? Adorno and Horkheim are saying yes, and that's a spiral-like line. That's a Hegelian line. It's a dialectical line. Um, and Foucault is going to say, yes, there's a line, but it's basically a straight line. You don't need dialectics. You know, in fact, this, this impulse to know everything, to categorize your knowledge, to put everything in boxes, to control it straightforwardly leads us to this situation of control, surveillance, ultimately totalitarianism. And he's going to look at enlightenment as a kind of moment of discontinuity, but he's going to see it as the progress rather of dehumanization where you have increasing isolation of the individual and increasing surveillance. This idea of surveillance is very, very crucial. So modernity is going to be a story about discipline and surveillance. Um, these, these attempts to categorize, to master through knowledge is going to give us a kind of fetish for calculating, for ordering, um, for classifying. Okay, um, I now want to get you to, before I, I save a few minutes at the end to talk to you about the archaeological method, which is less difficult to understand, the most crucial thing about Foucault, I think, um, and what your reading focuses on for this week is what Foucault tells us about power. He redefines power in our relationship to power, and that is intimately bound up with his idea of refocusing not on the subject and not on the momentum of history, but on discourse, on how discourse functions. And he's going to take power and use something called power slash knowledge. You know, Heidegger was into dashes, he's into slashes. Um, so when you see power slash knowledge, that's Foucault. And that indicates that knowledge is always bound up with power. There's no realm of knowledge that is free of power, that is innocent of power. You know, power, he's going to say, rests not upon control of the natural world, as enlightenment assumed, but upon knowledge itself. Now, the most important thing, and the real, in some ways, going back to the subject-object paradigm and in trying to invert it and overcome it, is he's going to say power does not emanate from a single point. You see echoes of the, the master-slave dialectic here. There's no like subject source of power acting down on some other object. Power does not emanate from a single point. Power's condition of possibility must not be sought, he says, in the primary existence of a central point. Rather, power is omnipresent. Power is everywhere, he writes, not because it embraces everything, but because it comes from everywhere. Power is radically dispersed. There is no realm of life that is removed from power. There is no such thing as disinterested scientific inquiry. There is no innocent neutral space. You see echoes of Heidegger, variations on the observer problem, right? Like there's no way, there's no magical neutral arch Archimedean point by which you can step out. Power is radically dispersed, it is omnipresent, all relations are power relations, it is dispersed first and foremost in discourse. Um, I, I sometimes use the analogy that I say I, I grew up in a Jewish family, so in our family, guilt was like power for Foucault. 
you know, omnipresent, radically dispersed, implicit in all relationships. <laughs> For Foucault, power is omnipresent, radically dispersed, implicit in all relationships. There is no escape from it. There are no innocent relationships. So you're disrupting this usual subject-object divide. Power comes from below, he says. That is, there is no binary and all-encompassing opposition between rulers and ruled at the root of power relations. You see echoes of Arendt here, too. Right, this um, power is relational like meaning and structuralism. All relationships are power relationships. Relations of power are not extrinsic or external to any other relationships, but are imminent. They are intrinsic. They are bound up with all relationships. Um, he deconstructs the power resistance. Binary, he says, where there is power, there is always resistance. Um, there is no escaping from power. It is always already present. You see the always already, that comes from Heidegger. Um, power is always already present, constituting that very thing which one attempts to counter it with. Um, there's always a dynamic. There's always a relational dynamic. There's always power going on. There's always resistance going on. Now, the other part of this, and this is very important in particular to studies of Stalinism that Stephen Kotkin is going to inaugurate with that very famous book, Magnetic Mountain. Power is not only repressive, but also productive. Now, he doesn't mean that in a normative sense. It doesn't mean productive good or productive bad. It does, it, but it does mean that it doesn't just crush, it also creates. Um. Okay, I only have eight more minutes left, so I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the methodology. But what I really want you to meditate on are the implications for this reconceptualization of power and how he draw, he's drawing on all of the thinkers we've read in some ways. He's drawing on structuralism, he's drawing on Arendt, he's drawing on the critique of enlightenment, um, he's drawing on Heidegger to really look at how power is relational. Power is both relational, but it's also in flux. You know, it's a binary, but it's not a static binary because it's always kind of moving around. The power resistance is always, those things are always moving around. So you see, there's echoes of, of Hegel's master-slave dialectic too, but it's more dynamic. Um, okay. Um, discourse. So his methodology is going to be to study discourse as a historian. This will lead us into what historians will call the linguistic turn, in which the object of historical study will itself become how people spoke about things. Um, again, the radical decentering of the subject, who is removed from his privileged position. You know, he, Foucault is trying to tell us that to talk about things is to do something. Um, he says, I have not denied the possibility of changing discourse. I have only deprived the sovereignty of the subject of the exclusive and instantaneous right to it. Power and knowledge are joined in discourse. Discourse, he says, transmit and, transmits and produces power. It reinforces it, but also undermines and exposes it, renders it fragile, and makes it possible to thwart it. Discourse, he says, has to be treated as a discontinuous activity. Um, and discontinuity is another word I want you to have for today's lecture. Because his historical method is going to be 
about an archaeology that focuses on discontinuity. The inspiration for this is Nietzsche's genealogy. Um, and Foucault is going to say that the historian is really an archaeologist, except you're not actually out there in the physical world, you're out there in this world of words, or this world of papers, or this world of sources. And what the historian should be doing is excavating layers of discourse. So you go back and look at how the ways in which we talk about things has changed. So there's a kind of combination of the synchronic and the diachronic here. You know, there's a very structuralist premise that we're looking at across a web of relations, how statements, how discourse relates to one another at a given moment. And then you look at the moment when something shifts and you take note of that moment of discontinuity when you hit a new tectonic plate. And when you see that, you hit that moment of discontinuity when something shifts, you don't try to ask why. It's not about causality, you describe it. You describe the shift. Um, so one example I can give you is when we talked about revisionist Marxism. And remember I said that the, the, writer, the Czech and Slovak writers in particular were very attached to this language of Stalinism. And they were real believers. You know, they remembered that their country was betrayed by Western bourgeois liberal democracy, that their capital was liberated by the Red Army. You know, they are very reluctant to de-Stalinize. You know, and the moment comes for them when they start juxtaposing words with other words when they start juxtaposing class consciousness with conscience, with individual conscience, when they start juxtaposing the word the people as a singular collective with people as the plural of persons. And you, you, when, you're reading, when you're a historian reading those sources carefully, you can see the moment when the discourse shifts. And Foucault would say that's your moment of discontinuity. Discourse is shifting, you describe it. And his histories are written like that. They're excavations of layers of discourse where there's a synchronic description and there's a description of a moment of discontinuity and then another synchronic description. Does that, does that kind of make sense? It, it's all on the metaphor of archeology. span um, The historian is kind of trying to discover the limits of a process, the point of inflection of a curve, the inversion of a movement, the boundaries of an oscillation. Um, archaeology, he says, his methodology is not a return to the innermost secret of the origin. It's the systematic description of a discourse object. So you're describing the discourse. Um, and his histories are really purely descriptive in a certain way. Um, if you want some more examples, Brian Porter's book, When Nationalism Began to Hate, um, imagining Modern Politics in 19th Century Poland is all written using Foucault's um, archaeological methodology. Laura Engelstein's um, The Keys to Happiness, Sex and the Search for Modernity in Fondasiak, Russia. Lynn Hunt's Politics, Culture, and Class in the French Revolution. And probably the most famous one, in some ways the first one, was Stephen Kotkin's Magnetic Mountain, where he really looks at the dispersion of power and discourse and how Stalinist discourse kind of created a Stalinist subject. You know, rather than the subject creating the discourse, the discourse was creating the subject. Um, and there was a whole circle that came out 
um, of that school of thought from Stephen Kotkin's students at a very famous seminar he taught at Columbia University in the early 1990s that included Amir Viner and Egal Halfin and Peter Hulquist and Johan Helbeck, re-looking at Stalinism now through a return to Arendt merged with Foucault and really looking at the role of discourse and how agency was dispersed in discourse. Okay, I only have two minutes, so, um, all right. Um, Foucault is considered a post-structuralist, um, although much more so than Derrida, he's still productive as opposed to just deconstructive in the sense that he gives us a methodology for writing history. And there's been a lot of good history produced using this methodology. Um, he does not, though, give us a kind of magic recipe for how to liberate us from the dilemmas of the repression and the surveillance and the control of modern civilization. But he does give us a methodology for writing good history books. Um, he's connected to this move towards the loss of faith that there's any kind of absolute truth, solid subjectivity, solid certainty that could maintain itself anterior to discourse. So this feeling that is everything, is the whole world just about how we talk about it? Is there a real world out there behind that? I mean, if God is dead, is now the author also dead? And the focus has just shifted to how the text functions unto itself. Um, Foucault acknowledges how painful it is for the death of God to be followed by the death of the subject. And he's sympathetic to those who, who can't bear it. I mean, you can tell when he talks about the death of the subject, there's a kind of mournfulness about it. He's not gleeful, he's not gloating. You know, he almost has a kind of the nostalgia for the lost subject that you get from Rousseau's lost state of nature. Um, and I'll, I'll leave you with a quote from The Order of Things where he says, to all those who still wish to talk about man, about his reign or his liberation, to all those who still ask themselves questions about what man is in his essence, to all those who wish to take him as their starting point in their attempts to reach the truth, we can only answer with a philosophical laugh. Okay, I'll uh, see you after Thanksgiving break. Have a good break. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.